Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I kind of want to start with quite an aside, a very tangentially linked story to our verses today. And that's because I had a strange dream yesterday that I thought I would share with you. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched one of those kind of end of the world apocalypse movies where a kind of inconsequential person becomes the person who can save the world from a tsunami or a tornado or a sharknado, depending on what kind of movies you're watching and enjoying. And it's always kind of someone who's been warning forever and ever that there's going to be a problem. And then eventually it becomes true and they have to turn to some fisherman in the middle of nowhere to save the world. And it all makes no sense. The facts and the science are all completely wrong. And you're wondering, how is this possible? But I'm kind of enjoying it because of how ridiculous it is. Um, In the day after tomorrow, there are kind of these ice storms that launch five kind of metre-long icicles into New York, and it's all a bit ridiculous. And last night, I had a dream about penguins. Um, I was transported back to university, and for some reason, I, an economics student, was asked to save the Finnish penguins who were going extinct. In in this dream, the habitat was being eroded, and every few minutes in this dream, someone would run in and tell me there were less and less Finnish penguins. So there were about 100,000 to start with, and by the end of the dream, there were about three or four left. And I had been given this responsibility to save these penguins, and I knew nothing about how to save these penguins. And in my dream, I was travelling around, I was asking people for the information, and I was just getting more and more depressed and manic as I couldn't save these penguins. And I woke up this morning and thought, that's a good way to start our our preaching um, service today. No, uh, the reason I thought I would share that is because actually we get into a place in life where we're facing things that we ourselves can't fix. And that story is ridiculous. There are no penguins in Finland, which would have been a good thing to know at the beginning of the dream. It would have saved me a lot of stress. I found that out this morning when I googled it. Um, But actually, we have this situation in our lives where we are fighting battle after battle after battle, and we see ourselves as against insurmountable odds. And we have a perspective of being in it alone. We have a perspective of other people haven't gone through this. We have a perspective of this is bigger than me. And that was what my dream was. And that is what the story we're looking at today hints at. It hints at a person... Well, actually, the story has a couple of people in it, but it has one person in particular who we're going to focus on, who looks around and does not know what to do. And we're continuing on our series that we've been calling The Living God, and we've been looking at the characteristics and the very nature of who God is by looking at the stories of the miracles of the prophets Elijah and Elisha from the Book of Kings. We've got two more weeks to go. I'm going to bring us to a close this week and next week. We've seen things that kind of hint and tell us about who God is. We've seen that God is a God that gives life. He's a God that speaks to us. He's a God that blesses us, that heals us. And today we're going to see that the living God is victorious. And normally I do a nice three-part sermon. I'm not going to do that. We're going to have one key question for today. Do you believe that God has the victory? Do you believe in God for the victory? 
we're going to rest with that question, and we're kind of going to split it into two parts. We're going to look at our story from Elisha, which is in um, 2 Kings 6, so if you want to turn to that. Um, And then we're going to look at Jesus on the cross. And we're going to look at actually how these two victories can give us confidence, faith, and belief that our God has the victory and can lift our perspectives away from the struggles that we're in into the things that he has won. That doesn't get rid of our struggles. I'm not going to suggest that. But it gives us the perspective of God, which is so helpful and so incredibly life-changing. So I'm going to read the story, and as I do that, maybe think about this. Do you believe that God is the kind of God that wins this kind of victory? So we're in um, 2 Kings uh, chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 8 and run to verse 23. Now, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The, The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and time again, Elisha warned the king, so he was on his guard in such places. And this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel. None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he is in Dotham. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God got up and went up early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Do not be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire, all around Elisha. And as the enemy came down towards them, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. And after entering the city, Elisha said, Lord, open these the eyes of these men so they may see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked, and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you captured with your own bow or sword? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the armed bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. This is an incredibly epic crisis battle scenario. It's one of my favourite stories from this series, and probably one of my favourite of all of the prophet miracles that we see in the Old Testament. There's an insurmountable problem a massive army who has gathered to find just one person and kill them. 
There seems to be no human way to solve it. They don't, they're surrounded. They can't escape. They can't overcome them. And it requires a miracle from God. There are some Bible passages that you get so much from every single word, and it's beautiful. And this is definitely one of them. But this is a story where the big picture is so incredible, so miraculous, so life-changing, that that's what I want to focus on, this big picture of God swooping into a situation, answering prayers, and changing lives. In this 15-verse story, I count that there are five primary characters. You've got the king of Aram, you've got the king of Israel on opposite sides. You've got the prophet Elisha, you've got an officer in the Aramite army, and then you've got Elisha's servants. All of these people get some kind of level of agency and quoting in the Bible, which is actually quite rare for so many people to be involved in such a small story. Often we have one or two main characters. And this is a beautiful story because I think it's very real. All these people, unsure, some of them sure, there's all these different emotions and behaviours. And today we're going to see that the living God is victorious in this story. I want you to, for a second, imagine that you are Elisha's servant. You've been travelling with Elisha. Maybe he's trained you up in some of his ministry, like he was trained up um, by Elijah. Or maybe he's just kind of a support person. Maybe he does the cooking, the cleaning. He is just a normal servant. We don't know. All we know is that he travels with Elisha. So I want us to look at this story from his perspective. You work for the guy who does the incredible miracles. When something goes wrong, they call up your boss and say, we need you here. Something needs fixing. Let's get Elijah in. Someone is sick. Call Elijah. He can heal them. Elisha, he can heal them. Do you spend half your life dealing with requests for help for your boss? That's the situation you're in. Everyone wants Elisha's help. And you're the guy who follows him around and helps him out. I think that might be a bit exasperating, to be honest. Like, you get to witness these miracles all the time, and they're for other people. They're for helping and, hin- and just hindering the enemy. There's some incredible things. It might be an inspiration, maybe, to be t- that close to someone. You get to be close to someone who is listening to God, hearing from them, spending time in God's presence, and doing incredible things with the power of the Holy Spirit. But now you've heard that a foreign king hates Elisha so much that he is going to kill you. He's going to capture them, kill them, take them home. We don't know exactly. There is a huge war going on. And God has spoken to Elisha yet again in this situation. He's placed him right in the middle of this situation. And you're along for the ride. The king of Aram wants to ambush the king of Israel and defeat him. But Elisha has heard God and warned him. It says in the text that he sent word. Maybe the servant was the one sent to bring the word. Would that be the greatest honour of your life or the most scary thing you've ever done? To be told to tell a king that he might be murdered. To give a king instruction. We don't know. These are scary. I wonder if there's a sense of responsibility about being Elisha's servant. If you say something wrong, get something wrong. It reflects upon the prophet of God's people. You're the dispensable one. I don't know about you, but if you ever watch one of those disaster movies, in the early scenes, there's kind of often unnamed characters who are featured a little bit. 
But because they don't get a name or they don't get um, kind of a prominent thing to do or say, they often end up kind of dead. They're the kind of emotional support for the act of the the act of what's happening. And I, I wonder if Elisha felt a little bit like that in this story. I'm the, the support for Elisha, sorry, uh, the servant of Elisha. Um, I'm the one who follows Elisha around, who helps him, who guides him. But ultimately, I am not the prophet. I wonder if there's a little bit of that in there. I probably feel a little bit like that. And what's interesting is this person has now found himself in a nightmare. He wakes up one morning to start his servantly duties. Maybe he's gathering food or preparing clothes or dealing with the animals. And as he does that, he sees that the town is surrounded by this massive, insurmountable army, all there to find his master. And he does what I would do, and he freaks out a little bit. He says, oh no, what shall we do? Which, to be fair, is probably more sensible than most of us. He has the sense to kind of ask Elisha, what should we do? I would probably run or hide or um, definitely not stand there and watch. Um, It's a whole different thing of, I don't know what to do. I'd be there thinking, a whole army has been sent to kill my boss, and I'm the guy standing next to him. A nameless servant seems unlikely to survive that situation. So he's freaking out, and he's speaking to Elisha. He's saying, he's saying, what shall we do? And Elisha speaks words that are commonly attributed to angels throughout the Bible. He says, do not be afraid. It's a phrase that comes up time and time and time again, often when someone is actually overwhelmed by the glory of God. And I think that is a hint of what is about to happen. What's about to happen is so much bigger than the army that they're about to face. This servant is going to witness the glory of God. Elisha knows that the Lord has spoken to him. He lives his life knowing that God is alive, is speaking, is victorious. Not in a past tense way, but in a present, ongoing and complete way. So when he sees the armies of Aram... He has complete confidence that this is not a losing situation. And the phrase he uses when he calms the servant, he says, there are more with us than those who are with them. That is what we get to stand with today. I wonder if um, Psalm 27, which wouldn't have been called Psalm 27, might have popped into his head at that point. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So Elisha reassures the servant and does the very best thing to do in a crisis. He prays. Now, if you're faced with a huge army, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray, Lord, get rid of that army. Lord, give me 20,000 guys on my side. Lord, do something. Maybe he recollects stories from other parts of the Old Testament where a small number of Israelites are just given the incredible ability to defeat much larger armies. We see it um, with the Philistines and others, enemies of Israel. Maybe that's what the servant's thinking is hoping Elisha will pray for. Instead, Elisha does something that I think is really, really interesting. Elisha's prayer isn't a call for help or a call for action. It's not even really about a prayer about the situation they find themselves in. He prays for his servant. His first prayer 
is open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. In the midst of the crisis, Elisha wants his servant to understand whose side they're on. And then a crazy miracle happens. The Lord overwhelms this servant and he sees mighty heavenly armies with horses and chariots of fire surrounding Elisha. This is probably where the penny drops for the servant. They aren't alone in some town. They're not required to have the answers for themselves. They are on the side of the God who has heavenly armies. And who can defeat those armies? Elisha's prayer is not for some incredible physical thing to happen for initially, but something far more important. He wants his servant to understand that the God they follow is victorious, is overwhelmingly powerful, and cannot be defeated. He wants to trigger that perspective change, because more than anything, that's what takes away the fear. That's what changes lives. That's what gives us confidence, knowing that our God has already won the victory. It's only after the servant's eyes are opened that Elisha then prays for something to happen to the opposing army. Only once the perspective has shifted. He prays for the opposing army to become blind. There's a a role reversal here. The servant is given eyes to see and the army, the physical army, is made blind, disorientated and lost. They become so disorientated, in fact, that he leads them all the way to the capital of the king of Israel, which at this time was found in Samaria because the kingdom had been split into two separate kingdoms, Israel and Judah. We actually lose track of the servant at this point. We don't know much about what he's doing, but I think witnessing this, seeing this, he's along for the ride. He's going to go and see what happens next. I, I definitely would, but I'm a bit nosy. Um, So this whole army has been captured. The king of Israel seems pretty stunned by this as well when they turn up. I think he also had been expecting some kind of defeat or some kind of obfuscation. And instead, what happens is this whole army is delivered into the hands of their enemy, the person they had initially set out to hunt. And he asks Elisha, what shall I do with them? Taking what I would imagine is a very logical approach at the time of thinking... If I just kill them all, they won't come back, Um, which makes perfect sense. They've been hunting you. They've been seeking you. You kill them all. They don't do that anymore. Um, Instead, Elisha orders a feast. He says, feed them. Give them water. This This is what you would do if you had captured them. It's an interesting act, and I think it's because Elisha, again, understood something that the king didn't. The Lord has won. He's demonstrated his power. These people who have been blinded and now able to see, they're never coming up against that again. They've been transformed themselves. Maybe they haven't come to faith, we don't know that. But they've experienced the mighty hand of the power of God, the living God. They are not going to stand against him again. You don't have to kill them because they've been defeated. Knowing that the God of Israel was victorious, would always completely change their nature, their actions, their behaviour. I wonder if they felt very, very lucky to be allowed to go home, to be safe and alive when they had witnessed the incredible power of the enemy they were against. It would have been nothing for them to have died. That is the God that we fight for. 
He's victorious and he is merciful. He's mighty and he's graceful. These people who had set themselves against him were spared after they witnessed his incredible victory. A victory that wasn't weapons and tools, but perspective, what they could see and not see. When I ask that kind of question of, do you believe in God for the victory? I'm asking, do you have that perspective? Do you have the perspective that God has won a victory, the battles, the obstacles you're facing in your life are done beside a God who is bigger than them all, who is victorious over them all? And it's harder to hold on to that, um, as we all know, than it would be nice to be. It would be nice if it was really easy to have that perspective all the time. But life comes along, it makes it really difficult. We know that the world is deeply broken. We saw Tim updating us about our dear friends in Ukraine, people we have journeyed with and had here, been out to sea, spent time with as they planted churches in a really difficult part of the world. And now things have got more difficult. I can't imagine what it's like to have... We know one pastor who moved to the east of Ukraine just before the Russians invaded Crimea in 2014. His house was destroyed in that initial move and he moved to a different part of Ukraine and then moved back to eastern Ukraine to a place where his new house has been destroyed by the Russians. And what I find just incredible about that person is he's filmed videos for us, he's updated us about situations and every single time he has the attitude of God is on the move there has been a victory. And every time there is a setback, God is bigger than that. And yet he's seen his friends die. His situation changed, his earthly possessions stolen, broken, destroyed. His churches that he's helped build scattered. It humbles me as we listen to what Tim has said. But he holds on to the perspective that the God he follows has won a victory. When we walk through our streets and we see homelessness and poverty, when we have family members, friends, ourselves who are going through those things, addiction and loss, brokenness, we need to elevate ourselves just a little bit to look God in the face and say, you have the victory. You are the God who wins. And it's hard to do that. But Elisha tells us a prayer that is worth praying. Open my eyes. Open his eyes. Open the eyes of those around me. The problems will still be there, but the weight of heavenly armies is standing beside you. We get to have a little bit more information than Elisha had, than the servant had. We get to know the ultimate victory that Christ won upon the cross. A victory that allows us to have our eyes opened communally, together, and not just one servant at a time, one person at a time. We get to witness a victory that allows any one of us to come and say, Lord, I need you. Lord, let me see. And I want us to think about what it means to live like a people who understand that God is victorious. What does it mean to answer that question of, do you believe in God for the victory? I'm always a bit nervous about going from 
big biblical text to some really practical things. So we're going to use um, a bit of text from 1 John um, chapter 5. I'm going to read it out to kind of help us think about what it means to live in God's victory. Chapter 5 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this love is for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcame the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Do you believe in God for the victory? I think this passage gives us three ways that we can live that out, three things that will help us understand and keep that victory perspective and help us do it. First of all, the hope is found because we love Christ. We love the Father, we love the Son. If we're going to understand kind of abstractly that God is in control, that isn't enough. We have to have love for the person of Christ. We have to want to spend time in his presence. Elisha was a man who knew the presence of God. His actions, his behaviours, his powers came from knowing and loving his father. And we have a full picture that he didn't. Jesus came to earth because so God so loved the world that he sent his son, taking the form of a man to live with us, minister to us, and ultimately take his place upon the cross. That alone is pretty fantastic, it's pretty incredible. But it's the fact that Christ rose, defeating all of that, that means we can live in his victory, that our path is clear. He wants us to love him, to come to him, to understand his victory because we were first loved by him. And then we obey God. This is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. When we live in the victory that God has won, we should want to obey him. Commands in the Bible are not something that are a burden or binding or negative. They're a path to living a life of freedom and grace and joy because God wants us to have it. Obeying commands isn't about saying, I'm putting aside a negative thing. Negative things will be put aside if you follow Jesus. But it's saying, I'm embracing the thing, the thing that is transforming, the thing that is victorious, the only one who can save. There's a kind of paradox that sometimes it's easier to obey when we see the victories that God is winning, when we see miracles, and sometimes it's easier to see those victories when we're obedient to God, and the tension in that is, where are you? Where are you in that? Are you the person who's constantly saying, well, if God just showed me a sign then I would be obedient, then I would change my life, then I would change my behaviour? Or are you kind of the other side of it, of I'm obedient, I do all these things, I follow the law, and I never see a sign? Why won't God give me a sign? Both of those are, are bad places to be, unhealthy places to be. We obey 
because we love God, because his commands are good, not because of the miracles that we want to see. But the miracles we see are because God loves us and he wants to bless us. He wants to bless his people. He wants to bless people who don't know him so that they might have a chance of coming to know him. And finally, we embrace the spirit. The text says it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. When we hear the nudging of God, when our conscience is tapped, when we think God is speaking, there is a call to follow that, to listen, to hear what God is saying. I don't know. We're not really told exactly how Elijah and Elisha heard the voice of God. Sometimes um, in the Bible, kind of an angel will come and speak something, or the voice of God will speak to someone and they'll pass it on. In this story, Elisha speaks, and we don't know what that was like for him. Did he audibly hear the voice of God? Was it a sense? Was it a feeling? But we know that the Spirit speaks today. And actually, sometimes taking that step of faith, believing God is speaking, sharing that, using that, is where we get to see miracles happen. Incredible things happen. In our series, we saw the handover between Elijah and Elisha. Elijah had been his mentor, had a mighty legacy of miracles. He was a man in communion and filled with the Spirit of God. And when Elisha took over, he wasn't, didn't seem daunted or overwhelmed. He asked God for a double portion of those blessings. He wanted even more of the Spirit of the knowledge of God, of the miracles of God. He asked and he received it. And I don't think he did that because he wanted to do more great things and be known as the guy who did more great things. But I think he eagerly desired more of God's presence in his life. I don't know about you, but I'd like to be the servant who has his eyes opened, who gets to see the heavenly armies and lives knowing that my God is a victorious God. I think, for me, that that is incredibly good news this morning. And I think living it will radically alter who we are 